Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Indiana Lawyer, Managing Editor, and your host. Thanks for joining us. The 2023 session of the Indiana General Assembly has begun, which means we have lots of news for you from the State House. Our extended interview this week also comes from the State House, and it's actually two interviews, not just one. Stick around to hear them. Of course, we have non-legislative news for you too. Let's dive into all of it. Today is Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, and these are your headlines. To start us off, here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington to start off our State House Roundup. Thanks, Jordan. Last week, six Indiana counties began the process of getting legislative approval to add new judges, magistrates, or courts to their local judiciaries. State Representative Jerry Tor, a Republican from Carmel, presented those requests to the Indiana House Courts and Criminal Code Committee on January 18th. House Bill 1114 includes requests for judicial resources from Davies, Delaware, Du Bois, Elkhart, Spencer, and Vigo counties. Davies, Delaware, and Spencer counties are each asking for one additional magistrate judge, while Du Bois County is asking for a second superior court, and Vigo County is asking for one additional judge. The largest request in the bill comes from Elkhart County, which wants to create four full-time magistrate judge positions this year, then two additional magistrate judge positions in 2024. Judge Gretchen Lund of the Elkhart Superior Court testified during the committee meeting that her county is in the middle of a judicial consolidation process, and the additional magistrates will help achieve the goal of administering justice more efficiently. Each of the six counties presented their requests last fall to the Interim Study Committee on Courts and the Judiciary, which is a required first step on the road to getting the additional resources they want. The House Courts Committee gave unanimous support to TOR's bill at the January 18th meeting, which means the bill is headed to the full House of Representatives for consideration. That hearing hasn't been scheduled at the time I'm recording this, but check back with our website for updates. Thanks, Olivia. Staying in the State House but shifting to the courts, the Indiana Supreme Court heard oral arguments last Thursday in the constitutional challenge to the state's new abortion ban. The courtroom on the third floor of the State House was nearly packed with media and other spectators, with pro and anti-abortion advocates waiting outside the courtroom doors. Back in September, a trial judge enjoined the abortion ban, finding it violated the right to privacy in Article 1, Section 1 of the Indiana Constitution. But the state is arguing that Article 1, Section 1 doesn't actually create a judicially enforceable right. On the other side, the ACLU of Indiana and Planned Parenthood are arguing that Article 1, Section 1's guarantee of the right to liberty includes a person's right to manage the most personal aspects of their lives, including deciding when and if to have a child. The Supreme Court carved out an hour for the arguments, which were presented by Indiana Solicitor General Tom Fisher and Ken Falk of the ACLU. The justices asked several questions ranging from basic procedural issues to more substantive questions about the meat of the law. One main procedural issue that came up could drive how the court rules. The law has been preliminarily enjoined, meaning it hasn't been fully litigated. Given that background, Chief Justice Loretta Rush questioned whether the court's ruling on the injunction would essentially amount to a ruling on the constitutionality of the abortion ban. Fisher said yes claiming the trial judge essentially declared the law unconstitutional when she entered the injunction. The arguments covered several other issues as well. Check out the article on our website for all the details, or visit the Supreme Court's website to watch the arguments in full. All right, one last thing from the State House. Chief Justice Rush gave her annual State of the Judiciary address last month. I was in the Indiana House chamber during her speech. Here are some highlights. The theme of this year's address was 
Indiana courts as engines of economic development, fairness, and public safety. And the Chief Justice's speech focused on the work of the courts that, quote, makes Indiana an attractive state for economic development and how it can protect public safety in Indiana, end quote. Among those drivers of economic development are the commercial courts, Rush said, highlighting there are now 10 of the specialized courts statewide that have seen more than 1,600 cases since 2016. She also talked about the problem-solving courts, including the numerous veterans courts programs around the state. Rush also recapped the technological improvements made over the last year in the judiciary and said the courts are currently working on their biggest project to date with a system called InJail. InJail will be implemented in Martin, Grant, and Elkhart counties this year, allowing judges to view real-time incarceration status, alert community agencies when a supervised individual is arrested, and create a new ability to share offender information between jails, law enforcement, community corrections, and probation offices. Rush also recapped the changes in the appellate and trial courts and specifically thanked Court of Appeals Judge Margaret Robb, who is retiring this year after 25 years. To read more about the state of the judiciary, read my story on theindianalawyer.com. Now let's shift gears to some judicial discipline news about a judge who will soon be suspended from the bench. You may remember that back in December, we reported on a judicial discipline complaint filed against Judge Jeffrey Mead of Gibson County. That case has been resolved less than two months later. Here's a rundown. Judge Meade was charged with four counts of judicial misconduct for his handling of two child welfare cases. The first was a paternity case, and Judge Meade was accused of making, quote, intemperate judicial comments, end quote, to the father, including using profanity from the bench and comparing the litigant's case to his own divorce proceedings. The second case involved children in need of services. In May 2020, Meade held an off-the-record hearing in that case in his chambers, but not all parties were allowed to be present, even though he made oral rulings. No transcript was ever created from the hearing, nor was there any recording. The judge in the Indiana Commission on Judicial Qualifications agreed that Meade violated several provisions of the Code of Judicial Conduct. For that misconduct, he will serve a seven-day unpaid suspension beginning January 30th. He'll be automatically reinstated at the end of the seven-day period. Meade has been the subject of three other disciplinary actions, resulting in two private cautions and one deferred resolution for, quote, demeanor issues and non-judicious behavior. He's been on the Gibson Circuit Court since 2007. Next, I'm going to throw it over to Alexa Shrake for a quick report about a federal lawsuit against the Terre Haute Federal Penitentiary. On January 12th, the ACLU of Indiana filed a lawsuit against the Federal Bureau of Prisons alleging unconstitutional conditions at the Terre Haute Penitentiary, which houses the federal death row. The complaint was filed on the behalf of Georges Katamobis, one of roughly 38 inmates on death row in Terre Haute, and alleges violations in the inmates' Eighth Amendment rights. Specifically, the complaint claims the individuals on death row were in isolated conditions in the special confinement unit that constitute cruel and unusual punishment. There are different levels of isolation according to the complaint ranging from one hour of solitary recreation a day to limited interactions with one other inmate. The Bureau of Prisons hasn't yet responded to the complaint. We'll keep an eye on the docket in the Indiana Southern District Court. To wrap up, I'll send it back to Alexa for a preview of a story she's working on for the February 1st issue of Indiana Lawyer. Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law announced this month that it's launching a new hybrid part-time JD program in the fall 2023 semester. IU McKinney is the only law school in the state that has a part-time JD program, and now it's the only law school to offer a hybrid program. 
The program is very similar to the existing part-time program, but with more flexibility, according to school officials. Students in the hybrid program will come to campus twice a week for the first two years. Then they will have the option of taking up to 30 credit hours online. I'll dive into specifics of the hybrid program in the February 1st issue, so be sure to pick up a copy. Back to you, Jordan. Okay, that'll do it for this week's headlines. Visit our website for more on these stories or for any other legal news. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear back-to-back interviews with the General Counsel for the Indiana Senate Republican and Democratic Caucuses. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Jeff Papa, Chief of Staff and General Counsel of the Indiana Senate Republican Caucus. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us here. Uh, Jeff has held his current position since November 2018 and previously was an attorney with Barnes and Thornburg, uh, practicing immigration law. Prior to that, working at Barnes, uh, Jeff served as Chief of Staff, Chief Legal Counsel of the Senate from 2007 to 2017. Jeff has served two terms as chair of the Indiana chapter of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, as well as two terms on the National Board of Governors of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. He is heavily involved in his community, even becoming the first mayor in Zionsville history in 2015. Uh, Jeff earned his JD from the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law, as well as an LLM law degree uh, concentrated in intellectual property law. In addition, Jeff holds a bachelor's degree from Rose Holman, a master's from Ball State, and a PhD in education leadership and administration from Indiana State University. Okay, so t- to begin, Jeff, when I checked on your LinkedIn profile, your resume is quite diverse. Um, could you just kind of tell us uh, your career arc and how you got to where you are today? Sure. As I was finishing up my time at Rose Holman, I sort of ran into an advertisement for the Senate internship program and sort of accidentally ended up participating in it. I think I was an alternate, last minute grab, but it worked out really well. And so I came as an intern, served in the Senate for that session of 1993, and then went to went to back to Russia for the summer, spent uh, the next year and a half at Ball State getting the master's degree. And then they, the Senate hired me as a legislative assistant coming out of that master's degree. And then, as you noted, I've been either there or at Barnes and Thornburg uh, pretty much since that time. So what does it mean to be the chief of staff and general counsel of the Indiana Senate Republican Caucus? (laughs) Well, um, the way we're structured, we have two, I'm not politically partisan, but partisan staffs developed to serve the two major caucuses in the Senate. So we have a Republican caucus and a Democrat caucus, which means that the, the Republican side has to service the Republican members, the Democrat staff has to serve the Democrat members, but... Whichever whichever caucus has a majority would mm. has to control you know make the trains run on time and control the processes and the budgets and external matters and so on and so because we we've had the majority for quite a while we've that goes through us to make all even the nonpartisan stuff work the IT staff the duplicating and bill distribution and the doorkeepers all those kinds of things. Mm. So we work well with the Democrat staff as well, but they ultimately have to make their requests through us for anything 
you know, budget-wise or hiring, firing, external contracts, anything like that. So, you know, it's a little bit of everything. And so the chief of staff role, ultimately all the personnel report up through me okay. on the staff side and all the, again, the budgeting, the procedure, the process. And then in the general counsel role, you know, we have all the litigation, uh, not litigation, sorry, not litigation, <laughs> the legislation uh, that's obvious, and I think the public pretty much understands that's what the General Assembly does. But there's also a lot of process stuff that happens. There's a lot of research that happens. And it, people may not be very well aware of it or think about it too much, but probably the majority of the work that's done is constituent assistance. It's not mm. lawmaking. So there's a lot of legal research. There's a lot of practical research. There's a lot of sorting stuff out. Well, is this a federal matter? Is it a state matter? Is it a state agency? And whatever the person or group having a problem with, can we work that out just by making a call or, or just finding the answer for them? Or is it something where, uh, you know, a senator is going to have to actually weigh in or propose legislation mm -hmm. or is it something less formal, but all of that research. So we have our own small legal department Oh, interesting. Um, that handles the legal components of that kind of research um, in drafting certain amendments, certain resolutions, but then outside of that legislative services agency does the bulk of that work and they, they do a really great job, but, but we do some of it. And that's where my general counsel role comes into play is the part that we do on the legal side, just small piece. And then in my chief of staff role, everything else falls under that. Sure. So what does your schedule look like right now during session and how does it maybe differ compared to, you know, a shorter session? Yeah, um, it's not much different in terms of a long session versus a short session in terms of what happens every day. Take, I think a long session may take a little bit longer to ramp up to 110% speed, but it, really there's not much difference these days in terms of the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. between a long and short session. And it's not a predictable thing. And you, you can't have a calendar schedule that says, I know where I'm going to be at 2 p.m. I mean, you obviously calendar stuff all day long, but it, it changes minute by minute. And there's not really crises, but very urgent things bubble up continuously throughout the day. So you have to be very good at allocating your time and delegating and fi you know, finding what the priority is at the moment and still addressing everything. Sure. But it, it's constantly different every day. Can you, uh, a, a, a time you can share that has really stood out during your career where you had to respond, you know, immediately? Well, obviously from time to time we have security threats. I mean, mm -hmm. someone, someone's having a heated argument or making a threat or that, you know, there's just uh, maybe something going on in the hallway that's spilling over or something that could, someone could get hurt. And, and even without intent, I mean, we have people get injured. Um, and so those things obviously have to take the top priority. Mm. Uh, but in terms of from moment to moment, it could be anything. I mean, it could be maybe a critical question came up in a committee about, well, can we do this or can't, or how does this need to move forward or on the floor during session? Hmm. And that's not something you can put off till tomorrow. I mean, you need an answer right now and everybody's waiting to see, Hey, what is the answer? And because of the nature of the process, you know, you're going to have people who disagree and you're going to have the, the two caucuses possibly disagree, or maybe it's not even along caucus lines. I mean, there's some other line, but you know, people have strong feelings on what the right answer is or multiple feelings on what the right answer is. But, Somebody's got to make a decision and it's almost immediate, which is a little strange in the legal context. I mean, I understand the pressure of courtroom and that I don't really want to do that. Sure. But, but, you know, it is um, it's something where you're making a judgment based on 
the Constitution, state law, federal law, the federal Constitution, the rules, the Senate rules, mm -hmm. the joint rules, and you need to be right. So it's uh, there's some pressure to that, trying to make sure that that's you're ready for those and the other people are ready for those. I think, Jordan, I'm going to maybe reword our next question a little bit because, you know, you, you've done public law, like in this, not necessarily public law, but, you know, this chief counsel role, you've done private practice with Barnes, you know, uh -huh. you just kind of your career, like Jordan said, has been very diverse. So I guess I'm just interested, you know, how did you come to the law and then how did you kind of decide what you wanted to do with your law degree? <laughs> yeah. Well, I never wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> Actually, I had a roommate who worked at the Senate a long time ago and he was a first year law student and he kept okay telling me, oh, no, you really need to take the LSAT. You really take the LSAT. I said, I don't really want to take the LSAT. And mm -hmm. finally, I just took it mainly to, so he'd stop asking me <laughs> about it. And I, and I did pretty well on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Senate had some tuition reimbursement mm -hmm. uh, procedures at the time. So I went to IU Indianapolis, now McKinney, mm -hmm. in the evening while I was working at the Senate in, in various roles. And so became, got, got my um, law degree finished. Never really intended to practice, but I'd always said, you know, in law school, people always say, well, what kind of law do you want to do? What kind of law do you want to do? I said, well, if I, if I was ever to, do, to practice law, I'd want to do immigration law. And people would laugh and say, there's no immigration law in Indiana. Huh. Well, actually, it's not true. Not at and all. And it wasn't, it wasn't true back then either. Most people didn't understand that, but there was. Sure. there was. Uh, and then I, I really lucked into a role at Barnes & Thornburg as an associate. It was after I'd taken the bar and passed the bar and they had need for uh, someone to help their immigration department and... Really, I, I was just extremely lucky, mm. and they gave me a chance, and that, that was a really wonderful experience. So I left the Senate and went to Barnes for about seven years doing okay. immigration law, then went back to the Senate as chief of staff, and uh, as you mentioned, spent about nine and a half years there, went back to Barnes and Thornburg, <laughs> spent about 14 months, and then there was a leadership change in the Senate, and they asked me to come back. Um, mm. Mainly, I think, for some institutional knowledge, which right. is a new leadership team. And so just to come back very temporarily, and I think that was a little over four years ago now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, still there. So you've worked, uh, you obviously worked with lots and lots of people. Do you think there should be more lawyer legislators, um, you know, at the state house? And, and how does that dynamic kind of uh, change operations when you are dealing with other attorneys? Yeah, well. You know, historically, there were many more mm -hmm. attorneys and there, there are fewer and fewer these days. I, I don't I don't think it's a requirement or a core necessity to be, but I do think it's extremely important to have a number of them who are lawyer legislators because I, th I think you need you need some members with that perspective of, OK, here's the practical effect of changing this law and, you, you know, at, as mo all your listeners know, you you just have a different different view of what the practical. You're not just looking at the practical effect. You also have to think about well, well, how does this? How does the Constitution come into play? Mm -hmm. You know, what there's some history here. How does the code itself work? And legislative services agency is fantastic at bridging that gap. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessary to be a lawyer, but I think the perspective, and particularly with certain, let's say, committees like, for example, judiciary committee, or you know courts issues or criminal law there's mm -hmm. it's really a good thing to have some practice some practical knowledge on the committee um doesn't have to be all the members but maybe some who uh, uh, grasp that intuitively about 
what the effects would be. So I think that I think there's enough there now. And I, I don't know. It's not up to me to say more or less <laughs> is better, but I think it's it's fine and it works really well. I'm not sure it would be great if there were zero or just right. two or three total, and it probably would not be good if there were 150 of mm. us either. <laughs> well, not us. I'm not a member, but you know what I mean. Lawyers uh, sure. serving the General Assembly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you need others' perspectives too. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, shifting gears a little bit, um, let's talk about Yeti. Uh, sure. A nonprofit that raises funds to sustain an orphanage in Nepal. Is that right? Yes. All right. So tell us how that started, what your you know role is, why you're passionate about this. Yeah. Give us the scoop. Well, I through co- starting in college and after, I spent five summers in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, wow. and then I did three study abroads during the summers of through law school. Uh, but shortly after that, I went to Nepal and taught English in a village for not quite a month. It was a little less than three and a half weeks, maybe, uh, where I was the only person who spoke English. And I was supposed to be teaching the kids how to, you know, some English and doing some nonprofit stuff there. Well, the group that I found on the internet to have that experience, it's common now, but they were on a really on the front edge of this volunteer volunteerism. Mm -hmm. And so I paid them some amount and I cannot remember, it was either $350 or $500 (laughs) for that almost month, which was everything from getting picked up at the airport through getting taken back to the airport at the end of it, you know, all, all the meals, everything living in the village. And they made a profit off that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they used that for com- small community development things. Like they, they bought some um, polio vaccinations. They were growing anti-erosion plants. They were maybe putting little cement stairs in the hill for some of the older residents of villages. Just little stuff here and there. And so we had that we had that experience. I spent that time there. And I remember very specifically when I got on the plane to come back thinking, well, I'll never be back to Nepal again. And I think that was... 16 trips to Nepal ago or so. <laughs> wow. But that that was in 2000 and sometime in 2003, Steve Wolf, who's an attorney here in town, he and I were, were doing some, we were planting some trees and we got to talking about it. I thought, well, maybe, I wonder if they'd be interested in the, the group I worked with in Nepal, which I hadn't talked to for almost three years. I asked, I said, I wonder if they'd be interested in starting an orphanage. And uh, we sent Steve and I, Steve Wolf and I sent him an email and we didn't hear back for about a week and a half and thought, well, either the email's dead or they don't care about this idea or they're gone. But 10 or 11 days later, we got an email back with about a dozen PDFs attached to it. And in that week and a half, they had, this is in the middle of a horrible 10 year civil war. Oh my goodness. They, in that week and a half, they had visited four existing orphanages to study them. They had talked to the government about what was required. They'd gotten somebody's father to say they would donate the land if the project went through. They had an unemployed architect friend do renderings of a three-phase building project. They had unemployed construction worker, like low-skilled construction workers say, hey, if you feed us and give us a little bit, we'll we'll put this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and they built a draft budget. And so, <laughs> at that point, we really didn't have a choice. The project was on. And so, we raised the funds to build the building in three phases. And then there was a fourth later to build a cafeteria-style building. We pay, We raised the money for that. And then we we pay to operate it each year and our big fundraiser is the annual dinner. It's March 6th this oh, year is the, the fundraiser. It's a dinner and an auction. And then when we, as we raise those funds, we've, we guaranteed the IRS that we would spend at least 10 to 15% here at home right. 
on underprivileged kids as well. So we've tried to stick to that over the years as well, at least that much spent here. Sure. Uh, you know, becoming the mayor of Zionsville, tell us about how that kind of unfolded and, and you know, why you've stayed also engaged in local uh, politics. Yeah, well, I was on the Zionsville Town Council. And as you know, towns in Indiana, with the exception of Vernon, Indiana, I think, do not have a mayor. They yeah. just have a town council. And that's that's great when you're really small. But when you start to think about the conflicts that develop, when you don't your executive branch in a town is the president of the town council. So the leader of the legislative branch is also mm. by his or herself, the executive branch. And it sets up a lot of inherent conflicts with uh, staying true to the open door law, trying to negotiate with possible business partners, all, just all kinds of things. And uh, the staff of the town being on edge about which faction would like them to no longer work there or not. And I think it works well in smaller towns, but once you grow to a certain size, that becomes a little unworkable, especially when most of your counselors have full-time jobs. Mm. They're, they're not just concentrating on that. And so we struggled with a lot of that, and Zionsville was growing rapidly. Um, it, well, we did it. We used the Government Modernization Act before that once, and we got rid of two towns. I was on a township board. We proposed it with the town of Zionsville and another township. We got rid of the two townships, merged them into the town. It was the first time it had ever been done, and we did a lot of unique things in there. But we still kept the town structure. And so as we grew rapidly, that became less and less workable. So then when another a third township was interested in merging with us, we used the Government Modernization Act a, a second time. I think it's only been used four times in state history. Maybe there are more now, but in Zionsville, done it twice. The second time we did was we proposed to get rid of the clerk treasurer, but instead have an elected mayor who would take all the executive branch powers from the council president. And then you would have a town with a mayor. We made several other changes too, but we just felt that was important. We didn't want to lose our identity as a town, but we wanted to have a full-time executive who was dedicated to running the town and making sure things were... We're on track. Sure. Um, so that had to go before the voter, voters, and we also got sued and went <sighs> all the way to the state Supreme Court. And, wow. Um, you know, worked out. They, they affirmed what we did, and it's it's moved forward. We've had some growing pains in the last few years there, but I think it's all getting worked out. Is there anything from that experience that you found transferable to your role now? Oh, well, yes, and vice versa. I wouldn't, Sure. The second reorg, um, the first reorg was very collaborative um, and organic things developed. The second one, I wrote myself. It, the law changed in how it worked. The first time you passed it and then you came up with the plan over a year. The second time state law had changed to say that you develop the plan and then you present that to the two governing bodies and to the voters. And so that plan for the second one, uh, I wrote and I would. there's no way I would have been able to do that without my experience with the state legislature and under and having seen all of the interactions with the code sure. that local governments were having and then the experience on the town council seeing that too to be able to, to make those adjustments and to say hey here's you know here, here's here's our own constitution that we've mm. come up with ourselves that's not where we where you're allowed to exempt yourself from certain state statutes and rewrite the whole thing yeah. and uh, you really have to have a good grasp like try to think through all the possibilities because you're making something that you can't back out of easily without another 
another reorg or a change in state law or something like that. Sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, What is something lawyers should know about uh, you or maybe the Indiana uh, Senate Republican caucus? Hmm, I don't know in what context is that. So we're approachable. (laughs) (laughs) If people have questions, um, not just lobbyists or law firms, but general public, if there are questions about things, we're always happy to happy to try to address those. And when attorneys have questions or, or lobbyists have questions about what about this, you know, is this germane, those things, we answer those in a neutral basis and say, you know, whether we have an opinion on the matter itself or not, you know, we'll say, yes, you could do that procedurally or no, you can't do that procedurally, but maybe think about this. So I think it's provide some resource there. And I, and again, I want to give a plug for Legislative Services Agency, too, and the fantastic work they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a big team of attorneys and fiscal analysts that mm-hmm. do the all the hard hard attorney work um, for the legislature sure. in terms of drafting bills and drafting big amendments and mm-hmm. doing research. How much crossover is there with the House um, and also with the Senate Democrats? I mean, is there any... what What's, what's that kind of like? Yeah. Well... We work with the House all the time. There's a lot of, I mean, not coordination of outcome, but discussions of things that are happening and going back and forth. And of course, a lot of communication with the governor's office. And we do communicate um, quite well with the, we communicate quite well with the Senate Democrats. And I think you're you're talking to their chief counsel uh, at another time. And yep. he's fantastic. We have a great <laughs> relationship with him. And it doesn't, nothing ever gets personal in the, sure. you know, the debates are back and forth. We have, people have an image of Washington, D.C. and people fighting all the time. And it's, it's really not like that here. I mean, the media may try to sensationalize the fights, but it's really three or four or five big things a year that get in those big discussions. But you'd be amazed if you saw the statistics of how many bills every, every session pass with bipartisan support. I think it's a majority passed with at least one member of both parties voting in favor mm-hmm. on final passage, the um, vast majority. And then even the number that passed unanimously, unanimously is huge. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable unless, until you look at the numbers and it's consistent every year. But by the time it gets to the final debate, there's most bills have broad and general agreement between the parties. And, you know, we have our disagreements, but I think it's a great working relationship and, we both caucuses have great leaders that are good working with each other. And I think it's, I think it's a good situation right now. For sure. Thanks again to chief of staff and general counsel of the Indiana Senate Republican caucus, Jeff Papa for joining us for part two of this week's extended interview. We have Jordan Cedar, chief legal counsel and deputy chief of staff for the Indiana Senate democratic caucus. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jordan has served as counsel for the Senate Democratic Caucus since 2013 after spending just under a year uh, as a staff attorney at Barnes and Thornburg. He's a 2006 Indiana University graduate and 2009 graduate of the Washington University School of Law. Uh, To begin, Jordan, um, was it always your plan uh, to get involved in politics and what was kind of your journey, you know, to your current position? Yeah, um, I don't know if it was always my plan. Um, I've always been interested in democratic politics. When I was in law school, I did some volunteering during uh, Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. And then when I moved to Indianapolis following law school, I got a little bit more involved in local politics, uh, which led to me getting a position as a part-time attorney at the Indiana Senate uh, beginning in the 2011 session. Mm -hmm. 
Are you are you from Indiana? Why did you decide to go to the University of well, Washington? Uh, so I'm from Ohio originally, but I went to IU for undergrad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, my sister went to graduate school there, and I visited the campus and really liked it. And it's an excellent school. So I uh, got in and ended up going there. So what does a day look like for you right now in the, the middle of session? Sure. So we're just now getting ramped up uh, with session. We kind of got a little bit of a late start. But now that committees are starting to meet in earnest and bills are starting to move along the process, uh, my day consists of following along with those committees, reading through all the bills that are being considered, uh, working with our uh, Democratic senators uh, if they have any questions about bills that are being heard or any ideas for amendments as it goes through the process for second reading and then final passage uh, before they move to the House. So uh, it kind of varies depending on what committees are meeting and how much is on the docket for a, a given day. Is there much difference between a short and a long session other than just the length of time you're meeting? Sure. Uh, the biggest difference is, is obviously the budget uh, mm -hmm. bill that's heard during the long session, uh, and that kind of dominates oftentimes the discussion during a long session. So, But that being said, the, just having more time to hear bills means mm -hmm. that a lot of other issues can also arise, and I'm sure that's going to be the case uh, for the session as well. What about when you're not in session? What's a day like then? Uh, it's definitely less busy. <laughs> um, we do have interim study committees that meet beginning in the fall, typically sometimes a little bit earlier than that. So I work with those and also getting bill research and working for ideas for the subsequent session begins pretty much as soon as session is over. Mm -hmm. The last two interims we've had, you know, an extended session for redistricting and then this past year with the special session for mostly SB1 has sort of cut into that interim time, but it you know gives an opportunity to to plan for the harder work of session. Sure. Um, you know, what's your relationship like with the house? Do you often work together with them as well as, and then the uh, Republican Senate? You know, what is, was that relationship like? Yeah, definitely work with with both those groups for the for the House. We work with the House Democratic staff typically at the halfway point of session when all the Senate bills have moved to the House and, the, and vice versa. We'll meet with the House staff to kind of discuss what what moved, what kind of issues they flagged or spotted as those bills move through their House, and now are going to be heard in ours. And then with the Senate. Republican staff, we definitely work very closely with them, have a very cordial relationship. And, and a lot of times there are things we're working collaboratively with. Talk about some maybe unique challenges of your job. And, you know, we could talk about that generally, but I am curious, you know, being the minority caucus, if there's any sort of unique challenges that come with that. Yeah, I think that it, there can be challenges and frustrations being such a small minority compared to the majority caucus as far as feeling like we have an opportunity to get our priorities heard and being able to you know advocate for our constituents because there are members from both parties on all the committees we do have you know our, it keeps our members busier than they might otherwise be since they have to serve on more committees to fill out a lot mm. of those roles and it does give us opportunity to, you know, offer amendments and offer perspectives on everything that is heard that goes through the Senate. So it can be frustrating, but, you know, it's, it's also rewarding when there's 
wouldn't feel like there's impact being made. Sure. How do you feel like your law degree has, you know, helped you uh, with your professional life? So I kind of have a unique role for an attorney. You know, I'm counsel representing legislative caucus, which is not a very common position. But I do think that it involves a lot of research and analysis, which is the, you know, skills I definitely picked up in law school and uh, throughout my legal education. So, you know, I don't think I could do my job without being an attorney. Yeah, I think legal research, you know, writing has, you know, being able to quickly synthesize new information that we get because a lot of times, especially during session, we don't have a lot of lead time to, you know, we receive amendments the day of session. So we ha- our office has to work pretty quickly to, to go through bills that obviously cover, you know, the entire spectrum of issues that the legislature covers, which is, you know, pretty much everything, criminal law, local government, environmental law, natural resources, utilities, all the all the issues that we face. So there's a fair share of um, lawyer legislators in, in both houses. Um, Minority Leader Taylor is an attorney, for for example. What's the benefit of that? And do you think, you know, we need more lawyers serving as our lawmakers? Um, I'm not going to ask my communication <laughs> staff who's in here with me if that is the case. I think it's definitely beneficial for uh, legislators to have a legal background, uh, especially on criminal justice and judiciary committees where they deal with issues facing the courts and criminal penalties. I also think it's good to have lay members or non-legal sure. members who can bring a different perspective for issues that that they hear. But our caucus has often had a lot of attorneys. Mm-hmm. We've had two Longstanding member, Senator Talion and Senator Landon, who were both attorney members and have recently left, which is a big loss to have that sort of institutional knowledge. But we still have, I believe, three attorneys in our caucus now. And it's definitely useful both for the issues and also for the sometimes procedural questions that are raised on the floor. It's good to have attorneys to handle those. Sure. Uh, What is something lawyers should know about uh, either you and maybe the Indiana uh, Senate Democratic Caucus? Oh, um, <laughs> that one always gets people. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think that I will say I'll answer for the Indiana Senate Democratic Caucus. I, I do think that our members are very the legal, the attorney members and the non-attorney members both are, you know, very cognizant of the responsibility of being a legislator and how much, you know, the bills that we pass can affect people's everyday life. And I think that's uh, something that they, and I as well, take into account when we're considering bills that go through the process. So you've been in this job coming up on 10 years, I guess. I mean, yep. what do you enjoy about it that that keeps you there that long? There's a lot of variety in, in the issues that we see. So mm-hmm. a lot of attorneys focus on a specific practice area, whether it be criminal law, family law. And I basically have to know a little bit about everything, which yeah. I which I enjoy being able to learn about new issues. And also I've been here long enough to, you know, feel comfortable with our members that I can bring some assistance or sure. to to help through. Yeah. As deputy chief of staff, um, you know, I'm, you kind of mentioned you have to think quickly on your feet when things happen. Um, are there any instances that you can recall over the past nine-ish years where you, you were put in that really, a really interesting situation with a set of circumstances that came up? I guess I think back 
to the 2018 session when on the last day of session there was we there was a lot of back and forth on this was the final day it was the day of sunny die and back and forth on dealing with some of the last bills and there was a discussion about moving the session or going past the midnight deadline mm. and whether that would be something that we could consider and at, our at the time Senator Lannon was the minority leader and kind of having discussions with him right before uh, he kind of we were a little bit of a scramble mode trying to figure out what the situation was and it ended up being we had to we did adjourn at midnight per Indiana code, which was required, and uh, ended up having to go to a special session. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the situations that was a very quick sort of timeline to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you're also kind of in a unique position with COVID, obviously, and trying to scramble. Um, what do you kind of remember about those initial stages and just trying to figure out how to make this all work? Yeah, I mean, we, we were fortunate in some way that the COVID restrictions uh, the COVID pandemic in general was right at the tail end of our 2020 session. It was a short session. So we were wrapping up in March. And so for the, you know, the worst of the pandemic, we were not in session. So it was a lot easier to uh, adjust and work from home. And then, you know, I, I think our technology teams and the folks um, from LSA did a good job, like a fantastic job of getting us prepared for the 2021 session, which was still under COVID conditions. And I, you know, it was, I, I, I believe when we started, we were still on half staff in the office at a time, which was difficult to do while still actually being in session. But, you know, I think that everyone did a good job of kind of being flexible and, and getting us through that, that uh, 2021 session. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks to Deputy Chief of Staff and General Counsel of the Indiana Senate Democratic Caucus, Jordan Cedar, for joining us. To catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast, visit theindianalawyer.com or visit your favorite streaming service.